guys, this is Debbie, and welcome back to my podcast, Candle in a Dark Room. So today, my special guest is Nola Hayes. Nola Hayes is an actress, activist, and co-founder of a new podcast called Sex, Love, and You. Nola is a survivor of child abuse and sexual assault, which resulted in problems such as an eating disorder, substance abuse, and other trauma. She now lives in LA and runs the social media for the Do Good Bus. So welcome to my podcast, Nola. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Finally, nice to be able to do this. I know we've been talking for a while and trying to get things to work. So I'm super glad that I have you on here finally. Me too. And I'm so glad that Zeke put us in contact. Yes. Got in contact because she is part of, I don't even know exactly how you know Zeke, but yeah, Zeke, who is part of the love storm with me, introduced uh, Nola and I. So yeah, I'm super glad that we've crossed paths and here we are. So uh, (laughs) do you want to, you know, start by telling us your story and, you know, you've been through a lot of things and I kind of just want to see how you got to where you are today. Yeah, of course. So um, I was born in Boulder, Colorado, and I grew up in a very big family um, with lots of extended relatives and we're all very, very close, but there's always been a lot of drama. Growing up, you know, I felt very loved. I have wonderful parents. I love them. I have a sister who I adore, but I always felt very, very alone when it came to different things. And I had dealt with, I was born with a rare disorder in my left eye, leaving it blind. And also I had to go through multiple surgeries as a child, which was horrific because Um, At one point during high school, I had a surgery and my good eye had a sympathetic response and I was blind for a week, which kind of shook me to my core. Um, Mm -hmm. And that kind of resulted in, I was teased a lot as a kid because my eyes were different colors. And now I actually wear a contact lens over my eyes because I don't like to draw attention to them. And yeah. And so from that stemmed, I became anorexic in high school And I was 89 pounds for a long time and just completely malnourished. But I thought that, you know, with that kind of attention and I was always given a lot of attention because I have, you know, super long legs. People are like, oh, my God, you're so petite. You're so cute. You know, that kind of thing. So I always wanted Mm -hmm. to maintain that childhood look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always seeking approval as a kid. So for example, I, my parents started sending me abroad as a child to go learn different languages. Cause I showed an aptitude for that. And I was really bad at math and science. So I actually ended up going and spending a year in Sardinia in Italy when I was in high school. And then after I graduated high school, I moved back to Italy to get my degree out there. Cause I speak Italian. And, um, while I was there, I was dancing every day. I was doing intensive ballet and getting my degree. And one of my teachers sexually assaulted me after we had all gone out. Um, and he wasn't one of my normal teachers either. And he was in his late twenties, but we were all going out at night to go dance. And he told me he'd walk me home because I lived alone. And he walked me a little bit further and we started making out. And I was like, oh, I don't feel great about this. And I kind of wanted to go on alone. But I was so used to just, you know, I was like, oh, well, he likes me. So I don't want to be rude. I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. So right. when we got to um, close to my house, I lived, you had to go back in this little alley. I lived in Venice in Italy. So like tiny little streets. Mm-hmm. And we went back into the back alley and he attacked me. Mm-hmm. I ended up screaming, screaming, pushing him back because he pushed me against the wall and mm-hmm. he backed up. And then when I, after that had happened and he left, I was shaking, but I felt awkward and I felt like, 
oh, you know, like now he feels weird about me. So we should talk about this. So I invited him over to have a conversation about it. Instead of having a conversation, he took that as the opportunity to just take my clothes off and do whatever he wanted with me. And me, oh, wow. because of not having realized it at the time, but having been molested, sexually molested throughout my childhood, which I'll come to in a second, I completely disassociated myself. And mm-hmm. I don't even quite, I just remember looking down and seeing myself be numb and limp and watching these things happen, but not saying no, just going completely okay. silent. Yeah, which, like freezing. Freezing. And for me, I didn't admit this was assault because I thought, oh, I was asking for it. And, you know, like I didn't scream no after that, you know, what had happened in the alleyway. So Mm -hmm. I figured it's my fault. So I only came out about it a year after it happened to my mother's women's group. And um, I remember sitting in there. There's like, is there, they said, is there anything you'd like to tell us, you know, Nola, anything you're holding back? And I was like, well, I was like assaulted and, And I don't know what I'd categorize it as, you know, because to me, you know, people had told me, oh, well, if you don't scream and fight back, it's not rape, but it didn't feel consensual. So I didn't quite know how to label it. Right. Yeah. You know, obviously that's the misconception that people have about assault is that you have to basically scream and fight and kick your legs to fight and basically say no. And that's not the case. You know, he didn't ask for consent and obviously you didn't give consent. So that in itself was, it was assault. So yeah, I'm glad that you explained that. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people feel like, well, I'm not sure. And I don't want to like accuse anybody, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a difference and there's a fine line and, you know, saying what, what was what, and you don't want to like put in, throw anybody under the bus either. But it definitely, it left me with such an icky feeling. And I knew he had a girlfriend too. And it was, he was older than, way older than me and taking complete advantage. So that was rough, but I, did you continue you know, class with him or what? It, you know what? I ended up graduating two weeks later and oh, leaving good. without kind of a word. So I moved okay. um, after I got my degree, I moved to New York and I got into a conservatory and I was dancing and acting out there. And mm-hmm. while I was there at school, I was, I was having sex with people, but I didn't find any pleasure in it. And I was very, it was, it was like a way for me to feel validated, mm-hmm. you know, because I was trying to fight back against my eating disorder um, mm-hmm. because it had left me, you know, I was struggling with, I was kind of having pain in my chest and my heart and I had lost a lot of hair. So I started just seeking comfort in food. I didn't, you know, gain weight, but I made sure that I was fed enough. And then I was just having random sex with people and not feeling comfortable enough um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, say that I didn't want to do something. And I remember I was dating this one guy and felt completely violated because he just assumed that we weren't even going to use a condom. And then he ended up um, getting upset at me in the street. This was my second year in New York and grabbing my neck my throat in public at night Mm. and I didn't and I felt I didn't even know what to do I felt shocked I broke up with him I cut off all my hair and I decided I wasn't gonna have sex with anybody so I spent the next year very (laughs) celibate and not really masturbating either because I felt a lot of shame when it came to my sexuality because I felt like all my mistakes had to do with that right I started dating this guy who was absolutely wonderful. We still have a good relationship, even though we broke up. But on my birthday of last year, I was triggered by somebody opening a can of soda 
And for some reason that brought back all of these memories of being sexually molested as a child by somebody very, very close to me. And I don't want to say who it is. Right. um, But it, it all came back and I kind of, you know, nonchalantly just said to my ex, I was like, Oh, this person used to touch me inappropriately as a child and throughout, you know, most of my life. And he's mm-hmm. like, wait, wait, back up, back up. And I'm like, what? And I kind of use humor as a coping mechanism. So mm-hmm. I didn't know it was a serious deal until the flashback started coming back. And I kept on thinking about, you know, that book, like Secret of Being a Wallflower. Right. There's a huge, you know, I never heard about like flashbacks coming to people afterwards because of all of those repressed memories being pushed down subconsciously, mm-hmm. you know, keeping so them I all started- in your trauma brain and not actually confronting them. Exactly. And I didn't really know what to trust either because it felt like it was somebody I was very close to. And this person had always told me, but, you know, looking back at it and even I had gone back to my childhood diaries and there was, you know, there was an entry when I was 12 and it was, oh, this person gave me a bath. And I'm like, wait, they shouldn't have been giving me a bath at 12. Watching me. No. And then, you know, and having to deal with like, I came out with it to some family members and the response was good from some people, but nobody was really surprised, but also there was a lot of doubt. And I didn't realize how many excuses were going to be made for this person saying, oh, Mm. they're from a different generation, or I can die knowing they would never intentionally hurt you. And they just don't know boundaries. And it's just like a different, they didn't mean to do it. I said, just yeah, but all of these ridiculous what? excuses, all of these ridiculous excuses. And, and they're saying like, oh, well, you know, you've unrealistic expectations for how you want us to deal with this. I said, all I want is for you to believe me and mm-hmm. for you to say, Nola, is there, how can I help you? you right. Know? Validate so, what you're feeling and to validate everything that you went through. That's all a survivor needs in that moment is for their loved ones to validate how they're feeling and to give them empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. Yeah, of, uh, you know exactly. what? I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I'm going to help you through it. And when we don't get that, it's kind of a slap in the face. Completely. And it makes you feel such distrust for, right. you know, because it makes you doubt yourself as well. Because I remember people saying, you know, asking me specifics, like, <laughs> like I have this reoccurring memory that comes back in dreams. And also when I'm awake of this person sitting on the edge of a bed, having their dick out next to me. Mm-hmm. And in some of my memories, I'm very close to it, or I'm just looking at it, or in some, I even touch it. And I'm not sure quite what's right. But Mm -hmm. I know that I wouldn't be having these memories. And why would I invent something like this when it makes me uncomfortable, ostracizes me from my family and, you know, loved ones and makes everybody feel uncomfortable? That's, you know, that's the thing. Right. There's obviously a reason why those memories keep coming up. They didn't just come up out of the blue. No, they don't. And one thing is like I had a, you know, different responses. Like people always want to know specifics. And I So you know what, like put yourself in the person, the survivor's shoes for a second. Nobody wants to tell you exactly where they touched you or what they did to you. That doesn't matter. No, no, exactly. 
I had somebody very close to me go when I said that I, this person, like I had these memories of this person exposing themselves to me. They said, well, at least they weren't hard. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> like you said, the way people respond just blows my mind sometimes. Like there are questions and it doesn't matter what exactly happened. I don't need to tell you the details. The fact is that I'm telling you that this happened and that should yeah, be good enough. But exactly. people don't have those boundaries, unfortunately. Yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> So that happened when that all came out. Yeah. You ended up talking about your family. And then what happened from there? From there, my mom had a lot of, there was a lot of this kind of thing on her side of the family. But I think that ultimately she felt guilty that she wasn't able to protect me because she was so protective as a mom that Mm -hmm. I think that turned into she just couldn't deal with it. So it was like, you know, denial. I I think my family's still very much in denial about it, except for a few select cousins. And I kind of realized that I'm not going to get the response that I want from them right now, or maybe Mm -hmm. ever. And that doesn't mean they don't love me. It means that this is too much for them to handle. Right. No, you're, you're right. They just can't handle it. So they'd rather just avoid it and sleep under the rug. Exactly. And I think the biggest thing is like, I didn't know, you know, I thought I had depression. I thought all of this and my dad, he's supporting me by paying for therapy, which is fantastic. And I have an incredible therapist that I've been working with for a couple months. But when they finally diagnosed me with PTSD for several reasons, there was like this moment of complete relief and this wave of just, oh my God, that's what I have. And I just completely let go. And now Mm -hmm. I feel like that I have that. I don't need to try to explain myself anymore. Yeah. You know, I know that this is legitimate. Exactly. I think, again, getting that validation of like, oh my gosh, I actually have a diagnosis for this. Like there's a name for it. It's not just something random. It's super helpful for those of us who have been through trauma to actually put, you know, it it makes it more real when you're actually, you know, validated for all of that. So when all this happened, did you ever report any of this? Not no family member. Okay. Um, no, I I did not. I decided that I want as much as like I I have a lot of issues with forgiveness because I feel like in a way that's making me you know not stand up for what happened. Mm-hmm. But I've also realized through talking with Seek and Anna Lynn and Amber that forgiveness is also a way for me to release and let go and move on from this, not let this become me. My story is not Mm -hmm. me. It's a part, it's, you know, I'm so much stronger because of it and like use that in order to help and eradicate sex trafficking and sex exploitation and use it for good instead of bad. Well, I mean, I don't think you can use it for bad, but um, it's just like a cycle, you know? It's like, I think of this person who did this to me and I think, wow, they must've had a really abusive person in their childhood. Mm-hmm. you know, and it's just perpetuating the problem. So I never, and now I you're doing what you need to do yeah. to stop that cycle. Exactly. I want this person to live the rest of their life in peace as hard as that is for me to think of, because the hardest mm-hmm. thing is I grew up loving this person. So I have such mixed feelings when it comes to love and hate. Mm-hmm. That Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So that makes sense why you didn't report, obviously. After all this happened and all this came out, what other negative coping skills were you kind of going through and using other than your eating disorder? Okay. So last year when I was still living in New York, I remember from January to April, I pretty much stayed inside the entire time. I did not know what was happening. I just realized this had happened in March. So part of that was just like 
seasonal depression at the beginning, but I think it was mm-hmm. everything building up to having realized to being triggered. So mm-hmm. I started because I was singing, I would sometimes take shots of brandy because it would help my throat. Mm-hmm. But I started to convince myself that I needed to drink in the morning in order to be okay to sing later. Well, even when oh, I wasn't okay. singing. So I was going through bottles of B&B brandy <laughs> convincing myself that I was actually helping myself when I was beginning an alcohol problem. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of addiction on both sides of my family. And Mm -hmm. I didn't think that I had an issue. I thought I had complete control, but it turned into that. And then later in the summer, I was smoking so much weed because I just didn't, I didn't want to deal. And that turned into like distracting myself in any way that I could. So numbing yourself, watching, yeah. yeah, binge watching TV spending way too much time on Instagram and drinking throughout the entire day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Like you said, smoking and doing all those things, basically just numbing yourself. So you don't have to think about any of that. Yeah. What's changed from that now? When was kind of your breaking point and what changed? So I had some health complications starting up last August when I had moved. So in July, I moved, not moved. I went to LA and I was like, I'm going to just stay with my cousins for a few months. Um, and I was still in a relationship. And then I decided, or I, I kind of realized, no, I was really trying to leave New York. I needed a new start. So I stayed in LA, but with everything that was coming out with what had happened to me with being sexually molested, I had been abusing a topical steroid in order because I was having like a rash that was coming out, which now I know was because my body was like holding so much back that I'm in constant stress and I don't breathe. I pretty much hyperventilate. That's what doctors have told me Mm. um, because I can't chill at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I had this rash breakout on my face and I was getting worse and worse and I was getting more and more depressed and sad about it because I, you know, it always had really good skin. And I realized, you know, it's not helping my diet you know, cause I was starting to get anorexic, like anorexia was starting to take over again. So I decided I'm going to go completely vegan. I'm going to go, I'm going to quit alcohol, quit drugs. Well, just weed. And mm-hmm. I'm going to start doing yoga again and dancing again. So on a dime I flipped and within wow. a month I was feeling way better about myself. I was feeling so healthy. I didn't get sick. I haven't been sick. Knock on wood since last August because I completely shifted the way I was living because I realized Mm -hmm. I was just torturing myself. I was just punishing myself for like having had this shit happen to me and put family in the position where they have to like feel uncomfortable and talk about it. Like I felt so much guilt and, and now like I rarely drink. And when I do, or when I do smoke weed, I realize, you know, it just puts paranoia back in me for the most part. Mm -hmm. And it makes me, it makes it worse. It gives right. me more anxiety. It's not helpful in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not at all. So you just decided just to quit cold turkey basically. And that works yeah. for you, which is crazy. Cause I think a lot of people, they can't do that. You can't just stop, especially if you have a drinking problem, taking substances, whatever the situation is. So I think that's awesome that you decided to do that. Are you still vegan then? I am. I am still and vegan. And I work in my body still. It does. And the thing is, like, I think it really depends on, I'm not the kind of person that pushes, like, I know being vegan is way better for the planet and everything. But I also realized that every person is, you know, 
it's to each their own and every person is entitled to make their own choices. And one of the biggest things, like one of your biggest rights is to choose what you put in your body. I mean, it has definitely helped me with everything. And I quit coffee too, which was the one of the, that was the hardest. That was way harder. Oh, wow. Why did you, what was your reason to quit coffee? Because it's really, I mean, the stress thing and it would make causing anxiety. Yeah, I have insomnia and Uh that has really helped immensely. And also with like the rash and everything. And I had a psychic, but also my therapist tell me that the way that my body tries to release the toxins and all of the stress and mental anguish that came with all of this is by releasing Mm -hmm. it through my skin, through this rash. So yeah, yeah, I think that that makes sense. It kind of goes and I've interviewed this doctor, Dr. Beale, a couple, I don't know what it was, but my first season and he talks about that, you know, how trauma, especially childhood trauma affects our bodies. And, um, you know, I was diagnosed with diabetes at 15, right after I came out with what was happening with my stepfather and nobody in my family had ever had diabetes. All of a sudden I get type one diabetes after I report everything. And so, yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. That's how your body was coping with everything you had been Mm -hmm. holding on for so many years. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that when you came out with that and then that happened, I mean, that is just such proof that we are literally everything is connected Mm -hmm. and, you know, and mental health is so important. All right, guys. So if you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me wearing and repping the cutest leggings and workout gear. Well, all of that is from my ladies at Clone Apparel. The founder, Alex, was actually a guest on episode 10, Darkness Before Dawn on season one, which was about suicide prevention. Clone specializes in apparel for every booty and boob type. Plus, they have stuff for men as well. I can literally go from recording this podcast to the gym to picking up my kids and never have to worry about them moving, scrunching, or showing my booty. They are squat proof, moisture wicking, and did I mention super affordable? I'm talking nothing over $45. They will be launching new styles including high-waisted workout shorts this month, which I seriously cannot wait for. Check out the clone highlight on my Instagram page and make sure you follow them on Facebook and or Instagram at clone apparel. That's K-L-O-N apparel. And the link to their website is in the bio. Also, if you use the discount code candle in a dark room, one word, you will get 20% off. So make sure you check them out now. You will not regret it. Oh, absolutely. And then that's when I ended up getting diagnosed with dissociation disorder and, you know, all of those things as well. And went to, you know, so I totally get that. And especially because when people are sexually assaulted on that stuff, their, their trauma brain reacts and all this stuff happens the way that they deal with it with their PTSD and everything. But I feel like childhood trauma, especially when it's long-term, like mine was, yours was, it does such an effect on our brain because we have so many different memories that we have to go through. And so it's a lot harder because our bodies are holding so many more memories in. It's not one specific memory that we're trying to work through. It's ones that we don't even remember. That's the crazy thing is like not being able to distinguish, say, oh my gosh, is this a memory or what is this? What is coming up, you know? Yes. And I, I remember when I first started having my like flashbacks and dissociation, I was, you know, obviously young still. And I remember kind of thinking like, okay, did I dream this? Is this, Did yeah. this really happen? Am I exaggerating this? And even now, like I'll think about a horrible memory that my stepfather did to me. And it, it seems so crazy that I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. did that really happen? Or did, has just time passed by that now, like my brain exaggerates it. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. so hard because it's like, you don't know sometimes what's real or not, but we just have to totally. trust that. 
these are, you know, memories that we've been holding in for so long. And so that's something that you have to work through. And you totally. said you do intensive therapy. What kind of do you do EMDR or what kind of therapy do you do for this? Um, yeah, a little bit of that. It's like psychotherapy. So my therapist okay. basically, she lets me talk, but she also, it's like a more of a conversation rather than a one-sided thing, which I really appreciate because uh-huh. I've had therapists in the past where it's just me talking the whole time and then like listening and taking right. notes. And then I don't feel like I'm doing anything, but She's great because she's, you know, she spends a lot of time focusing on doing exercises and she said, well, I'm a very, like, I love studying. And if I can look at something from an intellectual standpoint, I feel like I can believe it more. And so Mm -hmm. she will give me books to read and things to watch and things to listen to, which is really healthy because I feel like I'm taking my own recovery and healing into my own hands. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she, she told me, she's like, okay, well, when you were diagnosed with PTSD, like why don't you go and look at this article and look at the different traits and signs that symptoms of people who have PTSD? Because in my own brain, I'm still thinking, oh my God, am I just like overreacting about this whole thing? You know, like a lot of people right. go. And I went yeah, a couple of days ago, I was looking at this article online and it had all these symptoms like <laughs> that I had never even heard of, like ringing in your ears and oh, uh-huh. uh, being super jumpy and scared easily. And then intense panic attacks, which I, I didn't even realize I was having panic attacks where I would literally have to sit down in the shower because my vision would get spotty and I would feel mm-hmm. like I was having a heart attack. Yeah. You feel it in your chest, like your chest physically hurts. That's how mine gets too. Like it physically hurts like my chest when I'm having yes. those panic attacks. And yeah, like you said, it's so funny because so many of these things that you're saying, People who've been through trauma go through, but a lot of them, sometimes they're, they're, they come out in other ways. Yours comes out with your breathing and your anxiety and the pain in your chest Mm -hmm. and things like that. You know, um, others comes out with flashbacks or they deal with it by just sleeping and curling into a ball or other people, you know, cry. And, you know, it's so many different ways that people's bodies respond to trauma. Exactly. You said that how, you know, your whole sex life and your relationships and all that were, kind of crazy before you came out with everything. How has that changed now, now that you've started the recovery process? I was lucky because when this all came out, I was in a loving relationship for the first time Mm -hmm. in probably six years. Cause I had been, I had been with a guy who actually ended up blackmailing me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like when I was 18, 19 and that entire relationship was like, just, he would give me pills and I don't remember most of it. It was a nightmare. And I remember feeling being slut shamed and for the way and being and loving it when people would like comment on my body because I had been always told I had a great body and using that and being like, okay, great. I'll have sex with them, you know, and not knowing Mm -hmm. like not being very good about safe sex because I didn't love myself. Mm -hmm. And so now the difference between that is after I've come out with all of this, I've realized that. And I realized like the past few sexual partners I've had, I've realized, okay, you know, am I doing this just to please them? Or am I really comfortable with this situation? And I've been much more open, like the person who I'm sleeping with now, it's a very safe and communicative relationship with it, which Mm -hmm. is really the first one that I've been in. It feels like this is the first like casual dating, safe and mature adult relationship that I've ever been in my entire life. Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. And like you said, I think the most important thing is communication. If you could communicate with your partner and Mm -hmm. let them know and be upfront about things you like, don't like, that's such an important thing because you want to make sure that you're not triggering yourself or anything like that. So the fact that you can 
communicate that without feeling judged or put down or anything like that, I think is such an important thing when you have had sexual trauma. With you, do you feel like you have good sexual boundaries or do you feel like you struggle with that as well? So I struggled with that really bad at the beginning. Um, When I was a teenager, I was very sexually active with, I mean, I hate to to say it, but people that I don't even remember. And it was because I didn't have those boundaries. It was kind of more of, well, this happened to me. It doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. what happens now because I'm already damaged. So what's the difference? Exactly. And what's the difference? I've done everything anyway. So what's the difference now? (laughs) Uh, you know, things like that. But luckily I, you know, I met my husband when I was, um, almost 18, I was 17. And Mm. I, as our relationship at first, it was that way. It was just, let's just do whatever you want, but I'll do whatever because it doesn't matter. Um, but as I became trusting of him and comfortable and, and felt safe, I was able to, you know, obviously tell him my story and stuff like that and tell him my boundaries. So yeah, even now we've been together for 13 years and I, have things that still like I don't feel comfortable with or that make me like triggered. And so I'll tell them, okay, you know what, that actually didn't work for me. Let's try something else. Or, you know what I mean? So I I think communicating um, that now has been a big difference, but I definitely do have boundaries of what I do like, don't like, what makes me uncomfortable, what brings me back memories, you know, things like that. So yeah, I think that communicating those is so important to, to be in a healthy relationship at all. Right. Boundaries. That is the big word. That is the word of 2020 for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. And I think that, you know, you're starting off with that, which is having a partner that you can trust and be honest with. And I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Thanks. So I wanted to ask you, so with a couple different things, one, how is your eating disorder and now, and how do you deal with it when you are triggered? And the reason I ask this is I also... Um, when I was in rehab as younger, I had an eating disorder from seventh grade that I still struggle with now. I always tell people when you have an eating disorder and it's intense and it's something that you use for so long to cope, you know, because it's the only thing I had control of at that age. And I'm sure that's kind of how you felt. The only thing you had control Mm -hmm. of. So now, you know, people who have substance issues, drugs, alcohol, whatever, they can avoid those things by not having them in their house, things like that. Yeah. We can't avoid food. We still have to eat every day. (laughs) So how do you deal with that now? And we know when you're kind of struggling, I always tell people when they say, Oh, so you overcame your eating disorder. I'm like, well, no, an eating disorder is like a drug addiction or a substance abuse issue. You know, you're in recovery. It's constant work. It's constant. And honestly, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'd be lying if I said, I'm not thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch right now. (laughs) Right. Nope. I'm, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's constant. And I wake up and sometimes I just, you know, I have to eat right away, but it's always thinking about the calories, always thinking about, I feel like every person who has an eating disorder, you know, it is about like wanting to stay thin and skinny and feeling validated by feeling by, you know, your thigh gap or, you know, your Mm -hmm. thin arms or something. For me, it's like, if I feel like I'm going downhill or something, I will obsess about, the fat on my thighs. And if I have like one, God forbid I have cellulite, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing is like, I'm very small still. I'm like 105, 106 pounds. Yeah. And I think it's because of having danced throughout my life. It's just, mm-hmm. I have, I'm, I have a small build and you know, I got it from my dad, but I daily, I, re- I have to check in with myself and say, Hey, is this your eating disorder you're talking? Are you hungry or Are you obsessing about how many sweet potatoes you're going to eat? Are you pushing against something else? Are you avoiding thinking about something else so you're obsessing on your food? 
Mm -hmm. And being vegan now and having an eating so that I can be healthy for my mind and my body, not just trying to be skinny has helped me. So I am in the best shape I've been in, in years. Oh, that's great. Which is great. But it's also hard because Mm -hmm. it's this constant, you know, and you get validation from people like, oh my gosh, you're so thin. You're so skinny. Yes. And I think guys so hard. Because you're yeah. like, okay, well, I don't want to lose this. You know, I don't want to yeah. lose this feeling. So that makes it hard yeah. too. And that's a huge trigger. Like I have a pattern. Whenever I start dating a guy, I start losing weight. And my anorexia kicks in because I want to please them. And I want to be mm. the best I can be. And I want to be like, I don't want to be the person who is more into somebody. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I want yeah, them no, to no, be I, more into okay. me than I'm into them. Yes, you want. Because again, it's the whole thing of control. We want to be in control more than them. We want to be able to basically, you know, have all the cards. And I think that, again, it all has to do with the control thing, because especially when you do have an eating disorder, that is the number one reason is, again, it's something to control. That makes sense. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to be, if you're wanted, if you want to feel wanted more than they do. Yes, that is exactly it. (laughs) It's very well put. Yes. Yeah. He said eating disorders don't just go away. It's something that we have to work through every single day. Every single day, like you said, it's constantly in our head, thrown in our face, you know, holidays, everything has to do with food. And so when you have an eating disorder, it's hard because like you said, even for me, I have to constantly think, okay, I got to be careful. I don't want to eat too much. And if I do eat too much, oh my gosh, I feel guilty. Maybe I, do I want to purge? Do I, you know what I mean? And those type of things. And so it definitely, it's just so hard when you have to deal with the eating disorder and it's constant work that we're literally going to probably have to do for the rest of our life. Yeah. That's a hard reality. But the thing is, it's like so many people suffer from EDs and Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Different forms of it. So what about with your trauma? How are you dealing with that now? I know you go to therapy, but what else? Like, what do you do when you're triggered? So when I'm triggered, I'm starting to recognize by educating myself about what I have and, you know, dealing with sexual trauma from childhood, I feel like I'm starting to put together a list of coping mechanisms that are healthy. Like I have my, Mm -hmm. you know, negative list, which is like everything from eating to substance, you know, substances and everything. Mm -hmm. But now I realize that there are certain words that trigger me. And I think one, one big one is trust and so whenever somebody like mentions trust or exaggeration or something, I get triggered because I think of like the fact that some people don't believe that this happened to me mm, and that they right. think it were like, you know, negative attention or something. Like as a kid, I was very rebellious and I kept on, you know, I did things so that I get negative attention because I really wanted attention from my parents. Right. Um, you know, and I feel like every time that I hear something like that, or there's an issue, there's some kind of conflict. This the biggest one is when I feel like I disappoint somebody, I get triggered immediately. So oh, right. what I'm learning to do is realize like I don't need to say sorry for everything and that mm-hmm. I need to learn how to stand up for myself. So I think the biggest thing is realizing that I need to put myself first, put on my own seatbelt. Yep. Put yourself before all everybody else's feelings. Because sometimes we have to be selfish, especially, you know, when we are dealing with healing and things like that with our trauma, it's okay for you to be selfish in this moment because you have to do what's right for yourself and your own mental health. Exactly. And, you know, and 
I think being decisive and not, you know, asking everybody else for, you know, validation or approval. And yes. And I don't know if you feel like sometimes you don't feel like you're capable of making a good decision. So you ask everybody else. Yes. Everybody else needs to give you their own opinion. I, I even struggle with that sometimes now. And I'll have to like ask my husband, I'll be like, I'm so hungry. Well, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Like, I don't care. You know, little things like that. But then he (laughs) says something and I'm like, no, I don't want that. You know, it's just, it's exactly like that where, you know, it's hard for us to make, sometimes to make that decision. And I definitely, I'm a lot better now I've learned, but when I was younger, especially in high school and trying to fit in, it was, oh, I better sleep with the hottest kid in school. I better do things with, you know, I'll do all these things with the girls that even though they're mean to me, I'm still going to go and basically kiss their ass because I want to be right. included and I want to be validated. And, you know, so yeah, I mean, it completely makes sense. And even as an adult, people don't approve of us it's hard for us exactly and making decisions and then feeling resentful of people when we don't make those decisions for ourselves so like or they end up being the wrong decision right like I I dyed my hair and I got a lot of like (laughs) you know a lot of people are like why'd you do that like why'd you change yourself like why'd you do that to your hair you know you have beautiful brown hair and I'm like because I wanted to do this and it's my prerogative to do what I want with my body in my life (laughs) Right. I don't need to give you an explanation. I wanted to color my hair and it's my hair and it's my body and my choice. So yeah, exactly. Uh, I hate, yeah, I hate when people do that kind of stuff because they don't realize the impact it has on others. Little comments, little comments mm-hmm. can stay with you for years. Oh, it's, it's bad. And like even, so yesterday, um, I'm, my mom's getting married in the, at the end of the year and I was That's trying on a wedding dress and yeah. I don't even remember. I said something about the way it fit. And just like that was a trigger because my arms aren't the way I wanted to look at the wedding. And you know what I mean? It's little things that like, but the thing in the past is people have told me, oh, you need to start doing some arm workouts or you need to start doing this. So then it comes in my head in that moment. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I I remember I forgot. I'm self-conscious about this part. I don't want to show this part of my body or whatever the situation is. And that's so hard. I know my mom, I remember in high school when I came back from Sardinia the first time, I had gotten my period when I was, I think I was 15, almost 16 when I got my period and I lost my virginity like around that same time. And I had a lot of like trauma when it came to like thinking I had STDs or something because my mom had showed me that movie Kids when I was way too young. She came from the, (laughs) she was like, I'm just going to tell them so that they know and they're educated. But I was so scared of getting AIDS or getting HPV or everything, herpes. And so I remember when I came back from Italy, like I started, you know, getting tested consistently, even though I wasn't having sex because I was so fearful. And then I remember I gained a little bit of weight when I was over there and I came back. My mom was like, you know, very innocently and no, there wasn't any like malice in what she was saying, but she said, you look like a seal pup. And that stuck with me. And from Uh, there I ended up dropping 20 pounds, even though I was at a healthy weight. And uh, my mom feels bad about that. I'm like, you had no clue. And you know what? You do not need to feel sorry for that because that's also my own brain that reacted in that way. So So it's yeah. sometimes people's words that they mean, you know, completely nothing about it. But like you said, it can, our brain, because the way it works, with, especially when you have an ED or any of those, situ- any mm-hmm. of those type of things, that's our go-to is, oh, that was a negative comment. And again, it doesn't mean that they were trying to be hurtful, but yeah. that's the impact it has on, our, on us. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so I want you to talk about what you are doing now with like the do good bus in your podcast and kind of why you started that. Okay. So I, um, the do good bus is a nonprofit 501c3 run by one of our really close family friends. who I consider an uncle, his name's Merlin Clark. And mm-hmm. what we do is we basically, we take people out to volunteer at undisclosed locations around Los Angeles. And we're hoping to spread to different parts of the country and the world, um, and do tours and stuff. But we go volunteer mm-hmm. at different nonprofits for about four hours bring people there and we talk about, we learn about the nonprofit and every time we go, we actually donate to the nonprofit from, Oh wow. Okay. So so we take, we take corporate, we do corporate rides. We do birthday. We do like celebrity influencer rides and community rides. It's amazing. So I run social for them and it's been a great, it was a great way for me to get back into doing good and being in the nonprofit Mm -hmm. sector. Because I felt like, you know, go, doing the acting thing, sometimes you feel very shallow and like, well, I, this is a very selfish, you know, profession for me to be in. And no matter how hard I work, I'm not guaranteed anything. But right. Backing is something that's more altruistic has been really incredible for me. So when Seek introduced me and Amber over FaceTime, there was an immediate connection. And, mm-hmm. we, you know, we're both around the same age, we realized, you know, this is like, we have so many ideas and so many things we want to do. So within a week of talking about doing a podcast, we started it and we started a business. We have an LLC together now. And Mm -hmm. um, what we're trying to do with that is, you know, Amber has gone through a lot and Mm -hmm. I've gone through a lot and we've gone through different things. So we both have very different views and different experiences, but a common desire to eradicate sex trafficking, sexual exploitation, and to end sexual violence against men, women, children, and everybody. And so what we're going to try to do is create a platform using our podcast, but also using our website and our connections to create the link between people who have been trafficked and safe houses and creating a place where they can come and get information and, you know, and empathy and uh, just create a safe place for people. No, I think that's amazing. That's just such a great thing that's needed, especially right now. That's kind of what I'm doing with my nonprofit as well. Um, Not exactly the same, but where we're providing, you know, trying to help victims of sexual assault, sexual abuse, helping them get out of that situation and get into a safe place to live, a safe place to go. Um, Again, I I think especially right now, it's just so needed. But the do good bus, I think is so cool. And honestly, I'm going to just say this right here so people can, you know, hear it later. But I want to do an event for my nonprofit probably next year because of everything that's happened this year. But I would love for the do good bus to come and like, be a part of it. I think that would be so cool. So we'll definitely stay in contact with that. Oh, for sure. I know that, you know, I feel like we align on, you know, our mission, our goals and everything. And we'd absolutely love that. We do the discuss bus too, where we bring thought leaders on. So that might be perfect and have people um, use that as like a, you know, get up on a soapbox and they can like talk about things and people feel the opportunity. They have the opportunity to, you know, ask questions and not feel stupid or uneducated. You know, that's a big thing is a lot of people don't talk about things because they feel a fear of judgment. Right. They feel like they don't know enough and don't want to ask those questions and Yeah, I think that, well, I actually go to LA pretty often and next time I go to LA, I definitely want to come and check out the do good bus and yes, please. Obviously we'll meet in person and all of that. 
I would love Uh, that. So you guys, I want to give you a couple of her Instagram handles so you can check her out. Her Instagram for her personal is Nola Lee Hayes, N-O-L-A-L-E-E-H-A-Y-E-S. That's her personal. If you guys have any questions about anything she talked about today, you can either DM me and I'll send it to her or you are welcome to DM her. The Do Good Bus is at Do Good Bus. Her new podcast page is called Sex, Love, and You. So check that out. They barely started the podcast. I'm actually going to be a guest on it this next week. So make sure you guys follow them. And if you guys have any questions, DM me or Nola. Nola, do you have anything else that you want to add? I just want to say to you and everybody out there that you are loved. You are needed on this earth and you're not alone. Yes, I love that. Thank you so much. (laughs) I so appreciate it. I had a blast. Yes, thank you. Uh, You guys, make sure you follow at Candle in a Dark Room, and we will talk to you next time.